Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh65. This week, we have all four regular hosts. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet. I'm almost getting kind of tired of saying that, but whatever. And the Get Out of Hell Free card, a fun online, offline viral gimmick. That's a problem with being the oldest, Randy. It, that never changes. You, you could know. shut it down. Problem solved. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I'm still having fun. Oh, uh, then, yeah. Then it's, I guess you're stuck with it. Uh, I'm Kevin Savitz, creator of freeprintable.net, where you can download, let's see, 48,571 printable documents and templates all for free. And faxzero.com, where you can send faxes to anywhere in the United States or Canada or harass your government officials for free. I used it yesterday. Did you? Good for you. Did you were you harassing your government officials? No, it's... Long story, but I had to file a form that they do not want by email. Mm. Oh, Lord. Got it. Yep. I'm Leo Notenboom, the Leo in AskLeo.com, where I help people with their technology struggles and occasionally tell them exactly just what a fax is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer at MacMost.com, and I make mobile games, clevermedia.com, and WordPress stuff at WPTipsandHacks.com. Well, we had fun last week. That was uh, kind of neat to get together in person. And then uh, we did the uh, meetup, which wow. was decently attended despite the people having parking problems and some of them didn't actually make it in. But uh, we're, we're planning on doing it again. We're going to get together again in Boise in October. Mm-hmm. So those of you in and around Boise that have any suggestions on a great facility that can handle 50 or 75 people coming to hear some talks, um, maybe with some good broadband, pop us an email. And good nearby pizza. That always helps. Yeah, that does oh, help. Yeah. So yeah, it was a good time. I enjoyed it. So yes, if you're, uh, if you're Boise bound in October, come on. Come on. <laughs> or you live there. Or you, well, yes. Yeah, there are some people who live there. Yeah, quite a, quite a few. Yep. All right, Kevin, what did you do? Uh, what did I do? I took the family. So, so I took the family to see uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey at our local nonprofit theater, which is called Hollywood Theater here in Portland, Oregon. They recently purchased a new 70 millimeter print of uh, that movie yeah so they i guess they had the opportunity to buy to have a new print printed and it was i believe twenty five thousand dollars to have that done and so they did thousand wow yeah so they did sort of a kickstarter indiegogo sort of thing basically independently just like to to the local community and they said uh, hey help us help us own this movie so uh, i threw in a couple hundred bucks and uh ended up with with uh, three tickets to the to one of the, their first showings on their their new print of 2001 um so i took in my I took my wife i took the 12 year old kid um who had never seen it and i really didn't prime them much with like what to expect um 
Yeah, I bet she was kind of freaked out. Well, or bored. <laughs> I was expecting her to be bored because I mean, parts it's of that movie. Slowly. Yeah, it's a slow movie. Um, well, certainly compared to the movies of today, right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that has changed over the years. Right, yeah. Um, I don't think she was bored at all. She was confused. She was just like, first thought. <laughs> Welcome at, to the club. Watching wait, some wait, sort of, weren't we all? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, watching some sort of nature documentary at first, you know? And then, <laughs> and then she had many questions about what had happened. And I was just like, yeah, I, I have a lot of the same questions. <laughs> It's that's uh, been the the typical response to that movie since the sixties. Yeah, yeah. So I had never seen it before on any big screen. I, I had seen it on. Yeah, yeah I don't uh, know if I have either on HD TV one time years ago. But um, so it, for me, it was neat. I mean, it was great seeing it in the seventy millimeter big screen. It was beautiful. Uh, it's a, just a beautiful movie, even if you don't understand what the heck's going on. But for me, that movie was about the sound, um, the music and just the sounds of space and then like the lack of sound of space. And uh, it was, the, the sound system in this theater was great. I mean, I guess it was good enough. I, I was impressed by it. And just like the, the music and the, the, just the hum of space. I'm just, I was into it. That's what sold it for me. So um, it was a great movie and I had a great time and uh, didn't freak out the kid too much. And uh, it was good. So I actually did see the movie years ago in its original Cinerama release, Wow! which uh, I believe is even more impressive and higher quality than the 70 millimeter because uh, it requires all that special hardware to even show the thing, much less um, carry it around. Now, Cinerama, I believe, and tell me if I'm wrong, was, was three 35-millimeter synchronized projectors. Is that right? Yes, that's my understanding, yes. Yes, and of course, then the special curved screen on which to display it, which is why there are very few theaters that actually could see the movie in that format. Mm. Recently, recently, like within the past 10 years or so, the Cinerama Theater here in Seattle was uh, refurbished, rebuilt, uh, by uh, Paul, the late Paul Allen. He basically invested a bunch of money to get it all spruced up again. And I believe they ended up reshowing 2001 uh, as part of that. I didn't see it then. I saw it back in, back when it was originally released. And I did the classic thing of, I read the book, I saw the movie, I read the book, I saw the movie, I read the book. <laughs> and I still didn't really understand what was happening at the end. But it was, it was such a great ride the entire time. Yeah. It's one of those movies, I think everybody has you know something that um, in their youth really affected them, really you know, made a difference to the way they think and where they might end up heading. And 2001 was that movie for me. Um, as it is, I currently own three copies. Uh, the very first version that came out on DVD, which was, a, a, I guess, a standard definition. I've only looked at it once or twice. Um, and, you know, just standard definition. Um, H, I guess it would be an HD movie. No, it would be standard definition movie. It was just a DVD. I then got the Blu-ray, which is awesome. And I actually now own the 4K edition as well, realizing that I don't have anything on which to play the 4K. So I'm actually looking <laughs> forward to uh, maybe an additional hardware purchase to make that happen sometime. But yes, mm -hmm. that's like first on my list of, of movies to, uh, to play in the various formats. So. Do, you, do you own it on Laserdisc? I do not. I do, <laughs> do you have not. a Laserdisc player? I do not. I never did. Never did the Laserdisc thing. I went completely digital. Remember, Laserdisc isn't digital. It's analog. Sure. 
So. I did have one movie in four different formats, and uh, that was beta, VHS, DVD, and now Blu-ray. And it is, of course, Princess Battles. Oh, please. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. I heard Princess Bride, and I know that wasn't it. What was it, Randy? <laughs> Blazing Saddles. Oh, uh, another classic. So that explains a lot if that's the formative movie from your youth. <laughs> Excuse me while I whip this out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. So um, back to the Hollywood theater. Um, one thing that's interesting to me is that they can still show film. Um, pretty much everybody's converted to digital because that's the only way Hollywood wants to distribute films anymore. Right. And and Hollywood theater does, I believe, definitely show modern digital films, but they also are a bit of a art house weirdo theater for film lovers. So they, they do show film. Yeah, and they even have a Wurlitzer pipe organ. I mean, oh, that's just awesome. I, I didn't even mention that part. So, yeah, uh, I, I would have gotten to – we got to the movie maybe 10 minutes before it started um, and got to hear some of the Wurlitzer. They, they had a gentleman playing the pipe organ before uh, the 2001 movie started, and he he was amazing, and he was just playing kind of you know typical pipe organ hits. And uh, – and then, but he but he ended with uh, also Sprach Zarathustra and of course yes and uh, it was very very incredible and it was a so yeah, do, yeah. does he do that before most movies or was this a special deal I believe it was a special thing I believe they do it about once a month there yeah I'm gonna um, have to start paying attention you may you may find me on your doorstep for that excellent you're welcome anytime and That's yeah we'll, a, yeah. we'll go yeah organs are another you know pipe organs are another you know, thing that I, that I resonate with, so to speak. Um, <laughs> used to be everybody, anybody remember pizza and pipes? No. Pizza oh, and pipes. Sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. It was a chain of some sort and there used to be one here in Bellevue and it's the same thing. They probably had the same kind of organ, an old Wurlitzer that was probably rescued from a theater or something. And they built it into a restaurant. And of course you could, you would order pizza and listen to pipes. And it was, it wasn't as classy as you might expect out of out of, out of the uh, you know out of something in a theater, but it was better than not having it at all. It was really cool to listen to, and of course, he would take requests and do all you know, you know, murder various pieces of music that he thought he could try. But it was very interesting and a lot of fun to listen to. So yes, yes, that's a that's a big one. One of my mo- one of my favorite pieces of music is in fact one that he may have played, um, Toccata and Fugue in D Minor by Bach. It's it's one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was the first CD, digital CD that I purchased was that, just specifically so that I could blow out my speakers. It was awesome. Nice. There, I'm aware of another pipe organ uh, here in Portland uh, at Oaks Park, which is a smallish uh, amusement park that includes a skating rink. And in the skating rink, uh, they have a giant uh, Wurlitzer pipe set. And I believe about once a week. Uh, they have the old guy out there playing it. And it may be the same guy who plays at the Hollywood Theater. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how many pipe organists there there are in this area. Um, but that's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, whether or not you're into the, the roller skating, I, I've been there and watching the kids skate around and, and uh, 
uh, and then there's this guy just like wailing on on the on the Wurlitzer. And I went over to him and I was just like, uh, "How about uh, uh, you know, don't get around much anymore?" And he just like starts to play. He didn't have to look it up. He didn't grab a book. He was just like, "Fine," you know. So uh, it was it was real real cool. So yeah, I'm sure somewhere online there's a map of pipe organs. You could. Well, I know that there's one in one specifically in Philadelphia that I want to visit if we're ever there, just because they do. It's built into like a shopping mall. It's it's world renowned. Um, I have a friend who's a, a church organist in um, on the East Coast somewhere, and uh, yes, that's you know, like if we're going to meet somewhere, that would be there. So, yes. very cool, Gary. What's up with you? Oh, nothing nearly as interesting as you guys. Uh, yeah, we're out of time anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but it is techie and, uh, no, I gotta, I'm trying to switch up some things here with my, my show. And, uh, so I'm experimenting with new mics and I got myself a zoom H4N, which most people that own it, most people that know it probably think of it as a portable recorder. It's got microphones at the top and you hold it and you could put an SD card in it and, you know, record, um, with batteries and you could plug in other mics to it and all sorts of cool things with it. But I'm not even using any of that. I, it, it has a mode where you can plug USB into it, and it becomes a computer mic. So I'm using the high-quality mic on it and the processing part of it, um, but I'm just recording directly to my computer. So it doesn't need batteries or the SD card or anything uh, to do that. And so far, the sound quality is pretty good. It's a pretty cool gadget. Very, I, I would say retro, but it's not retro. It's not trying to be retro. It's just retro in that it's a handheld gadget with like a ton of buttons and switches <laughs> and things on it. Well, and it's retro just, in that it has the XLR inputs. Yeah, it's got X2 on the bottom. It's just weird, you know, that when the it's, there's no touch screen. It's like a handheld device with no touch screen and a ton of individual buttons, switches, knobs, dials, all sorts it's of things. Savages. Yeah. So you're not using it now, are you? No, I'm not because... Uh, you know, it works best when I'm recording my, my uh, show where right. I'm always my, you know, facing and sitting in a certain way. For this, since it's audio only, I put on a headset and I could spin around in my chair and, uh, you know, I could face different directions in the room and not pay attention and uh, it sounds always the same. Right. Well, you could hang it around your neck on the lanyard. It could actually, and you could attach, so I can use one of those inputs on the bottom and attach a... Uh, but in fact, I might do this, get a, uh, a lavalier mic, just the mic, not the USB thing, plug that into the bottom, and then I could attach the lavalier to my collar and use it, and it probably sound pretty damn good. I, I might try that uh, for a show coming up. All right, Thanks. sounds good. Yeah. I have the, uh, the six-channel version, which is even larger, um, and I'm, I don't use it anymore because I bought it for... Uh, multi-person podcast and decided I didn't really want to do that anymore. So I switched to a me only podcast and don't need to have multiple XLR mics anymore. Yeah. Yep. I guess this is what four channel. Yeah. I guess that's the four and the, yeah, it's the two on top plus the, the two you can plug in at the bottom on the yeah. XLR. And the two on top are really just one. I mean, you're not recording two different people on that, but no, yeah. but it is stereo. Yeah, so then I guess you could plug in, you know, with this, plug in an instrument, you know, uh, using the ones at the bottom and then a microphone and could, uh, use it as a little sound mixing device, I guess. So. Yeah, it's, it's a really neat 
digital recorder. It's you know the standard in podcasts that that for people who want portable uh, recording. So it's it's a neat neat device and not too expensive. Well, yeah, it seems expensive depending upon what you want, right? There's it's a the couple hundred that, dollars. Yeah, yeah, the crowd that wants you know like a you know, twenty dollars seems expensive for a mic, and then there's the crowd that two hundred dollars is fine for a mic. So for this, you get the mic and all this extra functionality and portability um, on top of that. Matter of fact, I looked, since I just want to use the mic part, I looked at getting a mic like this. And I saw something very similar, could actually even be the same elements, but it was like $160 just by itself. And it's and it wouldn't even plug in to USB, I think. I would have to get it. So, you know, it made sense just to get this whole thing. And uh, no, I have got something of decent quality. All right, so what's in our lineup today? Yeah, I think Kevin's up first. Am I? Oh, I heard about this thing. It sounds weird. I want to just want to see what, what you guys uh, think about it. I read an interesting article at melmagazine.com, which seems to be a new online magazine that's in beta. Uh, seems interesting. Uh, but specifically, I found this article uh, titled, I let a stranger watch me work for a day and have never been more productive. And the article is about Focusmate, which it, this article calls the internet's most invasive productivity hack. <laughs> so basically, this is a website where you uh, you go to when you want to get work done for fifty minutes, five zero minutes, and it pairs you with someone else who wants to get some work done for that amount of time, and it sets you up the video chat and I believe optional screen sharing, and it hooks you up with a stranger. Uh, you introduce yourselves and you say what you're going to be doing for the next hour and then you silently work and they silently work, but you can see them and they can see you and, it, and can they hear you? Uh, don't know. Believe so. Don't know. Um, and I haven't tried this yet. And uh, yeah. basically it's supposed to keep you working because you are kind of uh, someone's watching you <laughs> you've got it you know and you're watching them so it's supposed to give some accountability uh to to uh, keep you you know and according to this article the art the uh, author said uh that they found it you know they were less inclined to check out twitter or wander away and make some coffee or, or whatever because there was some accountability there and i'm wondering if you guys have heard of this site and if you would try such a thing I believe in the old-fashioned way of getting more focus, amphetamines. But um, <laughs> but this is interesting. I, I think it's really interesting because, you know, you talk about accountability partners, but have them watch you work, that's that's a step up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I I'd ever. Before, yeah. I don't think I'd ever do this. Uh, but, you know, I do sometimes go to public places, coffee shops or train stations or whatever, and uh, – and, and work there. Um, train station's actually not a joke. We have a really beautiful train station here in Denver. And a lot of people sit and work on their laptops and the nice area in it. But um, the uh, but nobody's paying attention to you. So it doesn't. it's not a productivity hack because nobody cares if you're checking Twitter or playing a game instead of working. I just don't, I don't, I mean, I guess people do have issues with focus. Um, I don't know. For me, it's just like, well, if I'm not focused on something, maybe there's a reason. Like, maybe this isn't something I'm really interested in, or, or, mo- feeling motivated by, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
So I don't know. There's a word that comes to mind for me when I hear this, and it's just creepy. <laughs> the idea of a stranger watching me, even if I'm watching them, I don't know. It's it's not for me. Um, I would probably feel more comfortable with someone I know watching me, but the problem there is that I'd probably end up chatting with them. So I at least understand, <laughs> I understand the, the reason for making it uh, strangers, but uh, no. <laughs> pass, hard pass. Hard, hard pass, pass. Yeah. I see. All right. <laughs> so, so Kevin, you, are you going to give it a try? Apparently I have something you need to focus on. Yeah, I mean, I might try it. Um, I, I might try it just to try it. Not, I mean, I feel like when I, yeah, I should probably try it. <laughs> you, just, you, you, could, you could be the creepy guy. You could just be like, well, what do you have to work on? You, nothing. Just going to watch you. Nope. Just work. No, I mean, there's, there's a, an ebook that I started writing nine or 10 months ago and I made really good progress and I'm probably 80% done and I kind of stalled on it. And you know what, if I could really force myself to work, work on it for 50 minutes, Sure, you know that would I'd be an hour closer to being done. So, I'm that's kind of a use case that I I can think of for me right now. So maybe I'll I'll try it and report back. What I used to do when I used to write books more is I would go to the library, the public library, and they most public libraries have spaces where you could sit in a like a you know just a small room at the desk to work quietly, and I would take you know. I, I, this is before all the libraries now have Wi-Fi and everything like that. But back when I did this, they didn't. And, or if they did, I just didn't ask for the p- password or whatever. And it just did not connect. Um, I, so I treated it as like, okay, I can't do anything on the internet. I brought some materials with me, my laptop. And I, I have a goal of what I want to get done. And I'd sit in this room in the library and, and get it done in this different environment uh, than uh at home where I have tons of distractions. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, here at home, I don't know, there's cats that always want to be fed and sometimes spouses and children that want one little thing. And it, yeah, want it's to be fed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. I actually, <clears throat> I actually made it um, a couple of years ago. We made it okay for me to close my office door. Um, hmm. Mm-hmm. Which normally it's you know normally it's one of those things where the doors open all the time anyway just because, uh, no particular reason. But then I realized that yeah you know I am a little bit more focused, a little bit more productive, just by closing the door. Um, mm-hmm. It it obviously prevents the dogs and, and the spouse from coming in, but it uh, also sets kind of a mental tone that I should be working, and it seems to work. Nice, Randy. We'll get back to work then. Uh, <laughs> are you passing it to me for the next topic? I am. Okay. Just wanted to make sure you're not, you know, calling me on the on the lack of focus. Lack of focus? No, no, we won't go there. <laughs> All right. So I found this article in Science Magazine about um, using old technology for some new ideas in archaeology. And the old technology is U2 spy plane photos. Uh, They have recently been declassified. They go back to the 50s, and they are using very high-resolution film and probably the best lenses that military money could buy. And they realized that these are some really good photos of things that they could do archaeology on because 
they didn't have spy satellites back, back then. That's what they had to do too. So the hard part they're finding is, A, they're not digitized. They have to literally go to a special location and bring their own digitization equipment if they want to digitize it. And B, they don't have necessarily any data on what these photos are of, where in the world they were taken. No but, metadata? <laughs> so, but they've identified a lot of it, and uh, you know, there's some examples on Science uh, Magazine about, um, like, in the Mesopotamian marshes in 1960, here's an abandoned village, and here's the current village that's, you know, kind of a little ways away, where they can see the details of what they couldn't before. And they, there's no other record of, of this kind of thing from this kind of angle. I just thought it was cool. So what I found somewhat frustrating from the mag, from at least the online version of the article um, is that they do not have the full resolution photos that I could see. Yeah. There That's was the no, one. Nothing yeah, I, I tried to click, click through to see the whole like, thing. No, it doesn't get bigger. Yeah. Um, I'm really curious because they're saying that the resolution of these photos is actually better than most of what we get with Google Maps. And as we know, Google Maps, lately, the satellite imagery is really, really good for most, most of the world. Not everywhere, but most of the world. Um, so I just want to see, okay, how good are these things, really? Yeah, and they used to use uh, the Corona spy satellite surveillance Im imagery um, that went up to about 1972, but the U2 photos are a much higher resolution than that. So right. it's kind of neat. Yep. Yep. It's just unfortunate that archaeologists, and this literally is, for people curious, this literally is archaeologists that are looking at these photos because they're looking at changes in um, land mass or, you know, settlements or whatever over time. And they're, you know, in some cases in places that they currently can't get to for, I'll just say political reasons, just because it's not. Or really, safety reasons like Syria. Which are, would fall back onto political reasons, but you get the idea. Um, and it's, it's very interesting to see them do this. And I love that they are reverse engineering where the photos were taken. Yeah. By saying, oh yeah, I know where that is. And, and I know where that is, which means I also know the flight path of the airplane. And we can then sequence the pictures that happened in between. Oh, cool. It's, it's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. I just wish it were easier for them to get the, uh, the digital versions made. Yeah. I, I mean, Library of Congress has done a yeoman's job of, they have, you know, probably millions of negatives and slides going way, way back. And they've been doing a lot of digitization of those in very high resolution. Uh, and I've seen some, there's some of our, like our county seat from the 1800s. And it's like, oh, they had trains back then. They sure don't now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, this sounds like a job for the Internet Archive. <laughs> yeah, it does. So throw more money at the Internet Archive. We, throw, we, we talked about them last week. And uh, it's been interesting to, uh, to think about the kinds of things that they're doing. Yeah, I concluded last week saying I really should add them to my donation list. And I just happened to cross my December uh, credit card statement. It's like, oh, I did. They're already there. Yes. <laughs> Archive.org slash donate. So, uh, Leo, uh, quick tangent. You sure. mentioned to me that you were interested in doing some command line stuff to upload things automatically using the. Yes. Yes. Uh, you, you pointed me at a couple of things. 
Yeah. Have you, have you had a chance to give it a shot yet? I have not. I've not looked into it too deeply. I was just pleased that I was able to put, um, to, to get a virtual machine running with their, uh, the other project where they're going out and uh, essentially slowly spidering things that are at risk of deletion. Right. The archive team warrior. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's running. It's actually running on my old desktop, uh, my old Mac pro, uh, it's not really exercising it much at all in terms of CPU usage, but then there are 12 of them. Um, it's uh, And I figure, you know, I've got a good internet connection, so why not put it to some use? So, yeah, it's chugging away downstairs in my basement, just, you know, patiently doing whatever it does. Nice. Okay, that's all I need to add or talk about. So uh, let's have the follow-up on the GPS rollover. Follow-up. This yeah. weekend. So, yeah, we talked about uh, a few weeks ago the potential problem uh, with the GPS rollover. Basically, the GPS uh, system uses a certain number of digits to specify the time. And uh, when it runs out of digits, uh, it's 1,024 weeks. Uh, it rolls over and starts back at zero. Um, uh, just like a regular calendar. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I don't know. <laughs> um, and that happened this last weekend. And uh, basically what we had said based on our research ahead of time was that, look, you're going to, if this is going to affect you, it's going to be on an old GPS unit that is, is, you know, a decade old and hasn't been updated in quite some time. And sure enough, the two articles I read, uh, one at, at Bloomberg and one at somewhere else, um, thenextweb.com, both said, yeah, it was uh, uh, r relatively minor problems and uh, the, the GPS system did not collapse, which really no one expected it to. Although uh, I was yeah. amused by the one thing that did have problems with it. Yeah. Yeah, there's another, another slam on Boeing. The 787 <laughs> didn't have a software update on, on, uh, in several Chinese airlines. I mean, yeah, they, they patched it, but apparently the airlines didn't load the patches. Oh, they had to ground planes for a while while they... Uh, oh, I missed that part of it. it. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was in one of the articles. And, you know, I mean... The next I, one. Telling somebody that, you know, I live in Boeing country... Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, especially right now with the stuff going on with the 737 MAX, every little thing uh, makes bigger headlines than ever. And yeah, this, is, this one's just embarrassing. And it wasn't clear to me, Randy, you said that it was the, that Boeing did have a patch, but the, uh, the Chinese simply failed to apply it in time. Well, that's my interpretation of this because it was only a few airlines, apparently all in China, that had problems with it and you know we didn't have any other reports of other right. so i i think that just basically means that there was a patch it was applied most <laughs> to most of the planes but right. not those interesting well most of the planes got there safely i guess <laughs> yeah most of them did absolutely but i just thought it was really interesting that, yes indeed you know some of these really old old devices probably you know rolled over to 1999 mm -hmm. And a 787, so <laughs> rolled over, so to speak. <laughs> well, and the technology behind this still blows me away. A nanosecond of error in GPS time equates to one foot of position ranging error. Mm. Yep. A nanosecond. That's how accurate this stuff has to be. 
That's well, and that's why when you're looking at a GPS device or maybe even running a GPS app on your phone, one of the things it will include is um, a kind of an, a measure of its own accuracy. And what it's doing is it's right. measuring just how close it can really get depending on the number of satellites that it's locked onto and so forth. But it's also limited by your device's ability to even detect a nanosecond, right? Our devices probably don't. But the fact that they're usually good to within, I don't know, 50 or 100 feet is good enough for most of what we do. Right. But, uh, but the fact that the underlying technology, the satellites themselves and an expensive enough device will get you down to, uh, to an inch is uh, our foot is uh, pretty, pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Well, and the thing that they were really worried about was the electrical grid. And it was GPS satellites and their very accurate time that allowed them to synchronize the grid, which really helps keep the, the grid from crashing if there's a problem. Interesting. And uh, apparently there was no problem with the rollover. So It's funny because people keep kept rip, comparing it to Y2K in terms of what's about to happen. Something's going to roll over. In reality, it also mimicked Y2K very closely in the fact that eh, not much happened. Not much happened, yeah. Yeah, but again, like, well, like Y2K, not much happened because people prepared for it. Yeah. Right, right. People updated so, the software and most of the time updated their plane software. <laughs> most of the time, yes. So does uh, do GPS satellites run in COBOL? I hope not. Lord, I hope not. There's another rollover coming, um, isn't it in like 2036? When 2038. 2038. That's yeah. the, the clock on certain, ish, or certain editions of uh, Linux rolls over. Right. That'll be interesting. And again, here we've got, you know, at least now, what, 20, 17 years to prepare. We'll see if we get it right. Right. Set a reminder. Yeah. You know, there's <laughs> going to be panic then too. Of course. Well, there'll be headlines, uh, you know. of, of Now there won't because journalism will have been, have died. I know. Whatever <laughs> headlines look like. Then. There'll be no headlines. Oh, there'll only be headlines. There'll be no articles. <laughs> <laughs> the headlines will just be, everything is fine. That's it. Every headline. And they'll just beam it straight into your brain. Your brain. Right. Yep. yep. 17 no, reasons why. Yeah. No, I don't think there was any <laughs> any panic. Uh, I mean, there were some headlines about this potential GPS problem, but there was no panic. Like, I mean, there was panic. There was legit panic about Y2K. Um, but this, it was just like, ah, eh, your GPS might stop working or your, your plane might crash. Well, I think people that understand how deeply embedded GPS is into our, into our systems these days, they might have been a little nervous, a little panicky. Yeah. Just, because, you know, it's, it's a big deal. It's, it's something that most people don't understand and certainly most people take for granted. But the fact that it is embedded so closely into so many different things, uh, you know, it's just like ships at sea. I don't know if they can navigate anymore without GPS. Right? Probably do, not. Do people still learn how to use the stars and whatever else is available to do navigation? Well, before that, there was Loran, but I think that's gone now, isn't it? I don't even know what it is. It, it was a... You'd use radios and send out signals and you did differentials and all right, I'll look it up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I, I think, yeah, I don't think you need, I I think you could probably have a computer. All it needs to do is look at the stars or the sun and know the exact time. And, uh, you could tell, you could tell exactly where you are before was it didn't know the exact time. You should read the book. 
Um, latitude. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute. We're back around to you know, yeah, Kevin all I, three, three times at this point. Yeah. Uh, all right. Loran, also known as Loran A, was a World War II radio-based navigation system that was replaced by Loran C. No idea what happened to Loran B. Mm. Yeah. All righty then. That was for positioning boats on land. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't catch on. <laughs> the dry dock protocol. Yeah. All right. Gary, you wanted to talk about baseball? Yes, it's That's baseball. Not tech? It can be. Yeah. Uh, actually, there's a ton of tech in baseball nowadays, as there is yeah, all I sports. And uh, so uh, there was an article at TechCrunch, uh, which is, you know, probably somebody writes an article every year about this, about changing um, the strike zone to be automatic. And, you know, I remember, you know, umpires are horrible at calling a strike zone and they did some analysis of like, you know, who got it right, who got it wrong. And it's, they're off a lot of the time. It's a difficult thing for a human to do. Um, Before modern technology, it was the only way to call balls and strikes. But with modern technology, we actually, when you watch baseball on TV, it shows you like an overlay of the strike zone and it'll show you where each pitch falls. And so at home, you could watch with precision exactly if it was a ball or a strike, but the umpire makes his own decision. So you can, you know, if it's just a little outside and the umpire calls it a strike, you see that they're wrong. If it's, uh, you know, they call it a ball when it was a strike, you see that they were wrong. And so they have the technology, and it's fast. On TV, it's fast. I mean, they show it right away. Um, so the, the question is, is, you know, if they have the technology to call, call balls and strikes, why not uh, implement that and make it fair? Because right now, it's not really that fair. Um, you know, you get pitchers that will, you know, thro- thro- strike three, and it's called ball four, and then six runs score in that inning, and it changes the whole game just because the umpire didn't make the right call. Mm. Um, there's a lot I of know, resistance. Yeah. I have one theory why it won't happen. Okay. The umpire's union. Possibly. <laughs> I have a solution for that. And uh, Okay. Yeah. Throw, is it throw the bums out? Yeah, exactly. Uh, nice. Um, no, so here's here's what I think they should do. And it's pretty easy because they already have extra umpire staff that does things. Like, you know, when they make the uh, instant replay calls now, you know, the guys come out and they, you know, have got the, the headphones and they make the direct call to New York City and, and there's the play is reviewed. Uh, they also have an extra uh, umpire that sits back there and I think – uh, you know, in case somebody gets injured, but also I think he also watches balls and strikes and then gives critique. Or and I think actually an umpire when they're done, you know, they actually at the end of the game they get a, a review tape to watch and say, "Here's the ones you got wrong," uh, and, and the idea that you know they get better. But I think all they need to do is the umpire's still there, right? He he's got to be there regardless to call, you know, other make other calls. Um, but he sits there and he's got an uh, Nearpiece in, and there's the guy back there that has the official umpire equipment, the same stuff that we see on TV, but maybe even better. And the pitches get thrown in, and this guy then tells the umpire, you know, it's a ball or a strike, or even more information like just inside or you know a little high, that kind of thing. Now the umpire at the plate is the final 
uh, you know, decision maker. So what will happen is everything that's obviously a ball just gets called a ball like normal. Everything obviously a strike gets called a strike like normal. Anything that's questionable, he could wait a half a second more to hear on the earpiece, uh, yeah, that was a strike right at the knees. And then he can call strike. And you wouldn't know the difference. The players, except that suddenly everything would be super accurate. The umpire would still be doing it. You would not notice there's any change, but accuracy would be restored. What do you guys think of that plan? So basically a technology-assisted human umpire. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly. With, I think the fans would like it more. Yeah, because it certainly is one of the main contention points when those right. when those sure. calls are bad. And right now, the fans, or whether you're watching at home or, or whatever, have access to information the umpire doesn't. We have because we, we can see whether it was in the strike zone or not. And so, and I would think mad, we're going to be mad at the umpire if he gets right. it wrong at the wrong time. And I would think the umpires would want to be more accurate. You know, to use technology, they still they still call make the call, but this technology is going to help them. And it's still going to be a, another umpire, one of their crew telling them in their ear. Right. So it's not like they're looking at a screen or they're getting like a, you know, a, a, a vibration on the left hand, if it's a strike and right. Or hand different ball. beeps in their ear or something. Yeah, they're getting, you know, the umpire there is watching the game. He see, he has the strike zone overlaid on top. It, you know, it's similar to what you see. He goes and he says, yeah, low and inside. It was just, just in there. It was a strike. And the umpire gets to, Gets to then say strike, you know, and it's like it's it's a team thing and it's mm. technology assisted, like you said, inaccurate, and it would just get rid of that whole that whole issue of the game. Well, they they're doing it in basketball. They um, I just heard on NPR last week that there is a new ish. I'm not sure how old it is. Um, center for the referees, mm-hmm. where they feed in apparently by fiber optic all 18 cameras on every game that's being played. And so they can, you know, if there's a question about a call, they can play it back, they can zoom in, they can do all sorts of things. I mean, a really high definition and see, you know, did the, did the player flop, which means they, they fell down to, to pretend purpose. they got yeah. fouled? Yeah. Um, yes or no. And they, and they can, by slowing it down a lot, they can really tell whether it's, it's fake or not. And they were saying that sometimes on halftime, there'll be magicians that perform for the crowd and they can slow that down and say, Oh, I can see how he's doing. That. <laughs> so it's, just a, it's basically the same thing that players are magicians sometimes trying to oh, pull sure. the wool over the right. referee's eyes. And with that, I mean, the, 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 the ref referee center place is somewhere else. And so it's, it's people who yes. are, are uh, what's the word? Uh, not, invested you know they're they're probably not getting caught up in the emotion of of the what's going on in the stadium um and so they can probably have a a more even opinion about what happened yeah accuracy is for this stuff is good i mean these are huge industries i mean these players make millions of dollars the fans spend good money to either get it get it piped into their tvs at home or to uh, sit at the stadium, and the fans want that. There's no fan out there saying, "Yeah, I like it every once in a while when there's a bad call." No, no, they want good calls. Right. Well, if it's if it's a bad call for your the opposing team, then yeah, it's... yeah, but you'd, <laughs> you'd rather it be good. It would be you know accurate calls for both. Right. You right. know, all things said. So, 
Yeah. So Gary, my question for you is, is what is technology going to do for pitchers that are belly itchers? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Kevin, what? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, okay. It, just, it seems to be something a lot of people want. It's, is, you uh, mean pitchers that take a long time to throw to the plate? People are, you know, they want pitchers, not belly itchers. And I just think it's a... <laughs> That's, that has been a big, yeah, big issue a, that they've been calling for for years. Yes, yeah. No one's done anything about it. <laughs> nope. Still doing it. So. Is that our episode title? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> It's a long, long one. I'm not sure. So, Leo, is it is it safe for me to pull up this USB fob? Depends on the fob. So, what Randy's referring to is that there is a um, an article, <clears throat> actually several articles that's been in the in the news in a couple of different places. The one we're looking at right now is from The Verge, where Microsoft has announced a change to the way that you remove USB uh, thumb drives. Is what most people uh, think of right away. Now, this requires just a little bit of, of, of background. When you have an external device, an external hard drive, be it a, a flash drive, uh, a rotating magnet, magnetic drive, you know, traditional stuff, anything like that that's connected via USB, the operating system needs to make a decision about how likely it is that there's going to be a problem writing to that device. And one of the things that they do is they make an assumption. If the device is removable, you might think that, okay, we'll optimize for keeping things safe. The problem is that that is actually at the cost of some performance, or at least it was. So what happens is, in the past, the default was that Windows would buffer your writes. In other words, your program would write a bunch of data to your, to your external hard drive, and Windows would say, yep, it's done, when in fact Windows was still doing it. Right? So your program would think it was done writing, but Windows was really just sort of carefully streaming the data out to your drive uh, in the background. That's called buffering. Now, the change is that Windows is now going to not do that by default. In the past, it has. And the reason that this is significant or something you might actually even notice is that when you remove an external drive via USB, you don't want it to be writing at the time. That's the kind of a thing that could cause you to, actually, in the worst case, lose all of the data on that drive. That's why safely remove hardware exists. Safely remove hardware is basically a shortcut for making sure that nobody's using the drive before you remove it. It's annoying because you have to safely remove hardware uh, before you can unplug your fob, your, your thumb drive, your external hard drive, your whatever, whatever storage device you happen to have. By changing the default uh, to be uh, fast uh, remove, don't have to do that anymore. In fact, I actually kind of stumbled onto this the other day. It's already in the current version of Windows 10 from what I can tell. I inserted a flash drive and I did not see the safely remove hardware icon appear. And that's because the default is now different. So it doesn't mean, it does not mean that you could just randomly pull the uh, an external hard drive or thumb drive out of the machine whenever you darn well feel like it. Yeah, <laughs> you still have to kind of sort of make sure that nobody's writing to it. Whatever that means for you. On some devices, there's a blinking light. On some devices, there's nothing, and you just have to wait for your program to finish doing what it's doing. But the bottom line is you can't just randomly pull it out. But pretty much 
in the cases where you used to first have to look for safely remove hardware, you don't have to anymore. You just make sure it's done and then pull it out. I think it's a big, it's a big um, uh, safety thing. I think it's, I think it, a lot of people will appreciate this because safely remove hardware has always run into problems where it's basically saying, I can't because some random program that you've never heard of still has the thing open. Uh, and, and that causes a lot of people frustration. The concern, of course, is that, well, won't this impact my performance? The performance writing to this device. In reality, no. Uh, it's not going to be noticeable, I don't think, because we're not writing that much and the buffers aren't so huge that things aren't getting out to the device quick enough for you to notice. So I don't think anybody's going to notice a performance degradation unless you're using a very old machine that's still using something like USB 1.1. With USB 2 and USB 3, the data is transferring fast enough that it's probably done by the time you even think about pulling it. So I kind of use common sense in general where I... You know, if I'm just reading something off when I've got the file, I just pull it. I don't eject it or anything. It's when I'm writing that I I pay a little bit more attention. I occasionally have said remove hardware and it said not yet. We're not done with it. Yeah. And unfortunately, when uh, this this, uh, performance feature is enabled, in other words, when buffering is enabled, when safely remove is required, you know, you'd assume that I'm just reading data from this thing. Nothing could go wrong. Well, guess what? You're wrong. Um, <laughs> Windows, Windows knows better than you do after all, right? Um, it may very well be doing things to the drive, especially if the drive, for example, is formatted with NTFS. Uh, there are things that it may update in the file system, even if all you're doing is reading data. The only time that it's truly safe to do what you just described is if your device actually has a write protect tab, a write, some kind of hardware interlock that prevents writing. But even if only, in, in the normal case, even if you're only reading, chances are Windows may still be writing. And that's unfortunate. And that I think is one of those things that causes some of these unexpected, sorry, you can't do that yet uh, kind of messages. So I like it. I think, it's, I think it's a good thing. I think a lot of people will be, uh, will be happy to see that less often. Uh, and from a purely pragmatic point of view, it's probably the way it should have been now for a few years. And in the guys, time, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, do you guys find uh, in general for you and for people, you know, that uh, people are using those thumb drives less now than they were a few years ago? No. I'm going to say no. No. I think they're, I think they are still using them. I mean, let's face it, you know, they're, they're using them in place of floppies, uh, you know, that was the first step. Or I guess the alternative these days is cloud transfer using things like Dropbox, OneDrive, iCloud, etc. Or direct transfer like AirDrop. You know, to be honest, I think direct transfer, maybe it's different for Mac users. Maybe they've made it much more seamless. There is direct transfer available for Windows, but because there's so many different kinds of hardware involved, it's a non-starter for most people, right? Oh. It's just not something that, uh, works as seamlessly as you want it to. I know, Gary, you and I were talking about this um, in Denver that, uh, you know, the Mac actually uses uh, basically custom hardware, if I'm not mistaken, on the Wi-Fi port. Well, it's, I don't think it's custom. It's just it's the more recent Wi-Fi chips. Right. I, I think it, they're still standard, and they still – the same chips, for all I know, appear in PCs. Right. It's just that you have to be like 802.11ac, right. I think, to, for, to support that. 
Yeah. So the nice thing about Macs is that you can assume what the other hardware is going to be. You just can't do that on a PC, and that makes this kind of stuff so difficult. It'll happen, but the short answer is I don't think people are doing that on PCs. I think yeah. they're either using the cloud um, or, in more cases than not, probably still just using thumb drives and sneaker net to move things. Interesting. I just find myself using them so much less, and uh, I, I just don't see them much anymore. I mean, I, I remember back when flo- you know floppies were the, the thing, and I at some point I decided, oh, I always needed some, so I bought like a pack of 100, and <laughs> I think I got through 10 of those before like floppies died, and uh, you know we moved on. And I think that then I went to zip disks and at some point I bought a pack of 10 zip disks and I never got through those because I moved on really quick. And then I went to uh, CD, you know, actually DVD writables. Right. And at some point I bought a pack of a hundred of those <laughs> and I no, actually don't do it. <laughs> I threw away, I threw away like 90 of them cause you know, completely stopped using them. And then about three years ago, I decided, oh, I'm using these thumb drives, these flash drives so much. I bought a pack of 10. Oh, and, no. And I, have not, I haven't used hardly any of them since. And I, I, I used to like travel with them, like I have a, you know, a couple with me for transfer. I don't even bother to, it's not even a required piece of equipment anymore. I don't even uh, think about it. Yeah, I still carry a couple with me when I travel. Where I run into problems with thumb drives is that the capacity keeps changing. In other words, you know, right now, a 64 gigabyte thumb drive is pretty much nothing, which means the one gigabyte thumb drive that I still have in a desk drawer is pretty useless. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, because of all the security issues around them too, I hate it when you get one from somebody. I think like when I uh, did my last real estate thing, bought a house, at the end, the real estate company said, well, guess what? Good news. Instead of giving you a bunch of paperwork, Here's a little thumb drive with everything on it, and I you thought, said, no. and I thought that's nice that it's digital, but it's not. You know, there's a security issue, and they had no idea what I was talking about. And I explained it to them, and uh, and then the same thing with, uh, I think there was something else where I, I recently got a little thumb drive, and I was like, oh really? So I have to actually plug that into my computer to get the data off of it. Uh, all right, I guess I gotta trust. It's fine. <laughs> right, stick it in an old computer first. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. That'd be the thing that I would do is I'd you know go grab one of my Linux boxes and stick it in there. Yeah, and then and then just get the data off of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I probably, so probably yeah. You got to keep around an old machine to adjust. <laughs> it's kind of like how, you know I still have an old floppy drive in my basement for that same reason. You yeah. never know. Yeah, I think I gave you that one. Need <laughs> <laughs> so. an extra? I have I have some extras. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, Actually, if I think Kevin has more than all of us ever. Yeah. Why don't you buy a pack of 10 of them? <laughs> there you go. Uh, man, I remember, I remember, did you guys have those zip disks? I those? did, yeah. yeah. In the click of death. I got, avoided them. Yep. Yeah, they were 100, 100 megs. Yep. That was You're never going to fill that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was incredible. You could just fit so much stuff on there. <laughs> yeah, I had a, I had a zip drive. Um, actually, yeah, one built into some PC at one point and one on my Mac. And then, then later they came out with the Jazz. Yeah, which, I had that too, yeah. Which I don't remember if I had that. Uh, yeah, I had a some sort of Bernoulli-type removable thing before that. I haven't heard that word in a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, there's been so many, so many technologies for storage that come and go. And it's not, I don't think that's going to change. I mean, it's just, it's now it's, it just might be which cloud do you use or which cloud you know, system 
Well, know. it's come back around, right? Because it's now now I actually am storing all the stuff in the cloud. But in the seventies, that's where I would have been storing all the stuff, you know, before the first floppy drives came it around. It would have been much, much smaller back then. Yeah. So that's true. Well, yeah. or physically much larger. I actually, uh, I worked with the PDP-11. Uh, yeah. Or no, was it PDP-1? I forget. Yeah, I think it was a PDP-1. And it had a hard drive in it. And this thing, it was huge. I think it was like, I don't know, 12, 15-inch diameter kind of thing. It was massive. And uh, who knows how, you know, it was a meg or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. It's probably a really small amount of data that was stored on this big platter uh, on this machine in a rack. So, yeah. Well, what else we got? Or are we? That might be a good place to wrap. Yeah. We okay. Wrap. It yeah. works. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, you can, the show notes for this episode, for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh65. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the teh podcast. Hey, tell a friend about teh. Share it. You're having fun. Let them have fun too. We're having fun. We're having fun. Yeah. So yeah, we're that. definitely having fun. Except <laughs> for that whole listening. Yeah. We'll see you again here next week. Bye. 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 Bye.